0: Superbrain is a labor of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Hi there,
2: I'm Barbara Melville. I'm from Edinburgh and I'm 37 years old. I've had symptoms of COVID-19 since the middle of March, including significant cognitive symptoms, what people are referring to as brain fog.
3: My name is Patricia McNamara. I'm a consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and also at Northwick Park Hospital in London. I've been involved in treating patients with COVID and I've also been involved in sharing the COVID neurology
4: multidisciplinary meeting on a weekly basis. My name is Maddie Culling. I'm 32 years old. I live in Yorkshire, England. I contracted COVID in the beginning of April and now I have brain fog and post-COVID fatigue.
5: So my name is Adrian Owen. I'm a Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the University of Western Ontario. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by training, which means that I investigate uh, how the brain works and try to understand patients who have brain disorders, and I've been doing that for about 30 years.
1: Hello, my name is Caroline O'Brien. I'm 58 years old and live um, in Dublin, Ireland. I was diagnosed and um, for COVID-19 on March the 19th and was passed for two swabs. I have had multiple symptoms post-Covid and the main ones being brain
6: fog and fatigue. Hello, my name is Dr Lucy Cheek. I'm an experimental psychologist at Cambridge University. I'm interested in Covid because of my work with obesity and looking at the association between obesity and memory and cognitive issues and because I believe that some of the same mechanisms involved there may apply to Covid.
7: My name is Carolyn and I'm 47 years old. I live in Colorado in the United States, and starting March 12th, I believe that I came down with COVID, but I wasn't tested until May, and at that point, I tested negative. Uh, Currently, I do suffer from both brain fog and fatigue.
8: My name is Dr. Ron Daniels. I'm an NHS consultant in intensive care, and I'm also the founder and executive director of the UK Sepsis Trust. Covid's been in the news and it's been the bread and butter of my work since the end of March of this year in intensive care. A lot of people who survive have long-standing symptoms that are indistinguishable from the after effects of sepsis.
9: My name is Helen Brennan. I am 53 years old. I live in Liverpool in the UK. I was diagnosed with uh, Covid-19 On the 13th of May, which was the same day my mum died of hospital-acquired COVID-19 and I have brain fog and chronic fatigue. My name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to a
0: special episode of Superbrain, investigating the impact of COVID-19 on the human brain. Most people who contract COVID-19 will experience mild to moderate respiratory illness and recover without requiring treatment. However, an understandable need to reserve hospital beds for the most critical cases has meant that a considerable cohort are absent from official statistics because they followed government advice to stay home and many were not tested. While some have recovered as predicted, others remain incapacitated and are, in some cases, taking longer to recover than those who were hospitalised with severe COVID. Many have fatigue and lingering cognitive problems, collectively called brain fog, which is just a general term that describes a collection of cognitive symptoms, including poor concentration, trouble focusing attention, slow thinking, Problems with memory and with learning are taking in information, as well as language difficulties. These long COVID symptoms not only prevent these individuals from returning to work, but also from carrying out the simplest of daily routines without experiencing relapse. Equating not dying with recovery has left thousands and possibly even millions floundering. In the absence of any formal help, they have turned to online support groups as they struggle to understand and cope with their ongoing neurological and cognitive symptoms. This
9: is their story. I was tested because I'm a key worker. When I got my results back, I thought, well, I'll be okay. <laughs> this won't be too bad for me because, you know, at the time it was like it was only older people that were struggling with it, and I'd say that um you know, obviously I'm grieving and I'm very, very ill. And I'm also having to self-isolate in a room and not see my my children. You know, I, I, I could see them, but I couldn't hug them. They, they'd just lost their grandmother, who they were very close to. I couldn't get a hug off my husband. You know, I had two weeks of absolute psychological torture, I'd say, because nobody was allowed to come in to see me. And I wasn't allowed to touch anybody or anything. And it was a very, very lonely place. The first two weeks, it was almost like a very bad flu, very lots of aches and pains. But the one that disturbed me the most was what it did to my brain. Because, yes, I'm in a lot of pain. But my brain, I felt like it had been taken over. I felt like it had been poisoned. It was the strangest thing. And then when I felt dizzy, I felt like I was actually going to die. It was like a somebody had actually whacked you in the, the head with a metal mallet and you didn't have the pain on your head, but you had the effect of, you know, something battering your head. It, it was just the weirdest thing. I couldn't actually believe how bad it was. It was extremely frightening. When I came out of that first two weeks, then I started to become fatigued, uh, pain still, all kinds of strange things going on. But the worst thing was the brain fog was... Just unbelievable. I felt like, you know, I'd already been through a psychological torture because my mum had died. I was stuck in a room. My brain was poisoned, I felt. And then I couldn't even get out of the bed because I was so dizzy, it was frightening to even sit up. But then it went on to a, a terrible dizziness, but also a terrible feeling of somebody had put cotton wool right across the top of my head inside my brain. And there was a fuzziness all the time. And I couldn't even speak properly. I couldn't explain myself properly. I couldn't comprehend what my husband was saying to me. I couldn't read a paper. You know, it it was exhausting to do anything. Um, And that brain fog has stayed. I'm now on day 100. This is my 100th birthday of brain fog.
7: You know, I have no pre-existing conditions. And I think the last time I'd had a cold was maybe a year and a half to two years ago. And I was in great health. Uh, I was the last person that people expected to get sick. I was training for trail racing season, including a marathon. I was getting ready for mountain bike race season. I had done off-road triathlons Um, the weekend before. I had done a winter survival class where we snowshoed through deep snow two miles with 40-pound packs up at 8,000 feet and then dug a snow cave and slept overnight in the snow cave, you know, and I was fine, you know, I'm trotting down the mountain dealing with heavier loads of equipment than people half my age. I was one of those cases, you know, I was instructed to call this phone number and they would try to identify what was going on, but because I was not struggling with oxygen levels on a constant basis and because i didn't have a fever or cough i was told to just rest at home and manage it avoid going to emergency services or anything of that sort Um, just stay at home the shortness of breath was so bad that i was on bed rest and didn't talk because i could barely struggle through saying four words without gasping for breath and It makes me wonder if I had actually gone into the emergency services, if I would have gotten help sooner and maybe prevented from the escalation of the different symptoms.
4: I was uh, really fit physically. I work a very physical job. I was working 40 hours a week. I was training. uh, I trained martial arts. So I was training and training for fights as well. So that included Five hours of training a week plus running two to three times a week.
1: I've been swapped three times actually. So twice, you know, and around the same time what happened was I ran in on the Sunday um, by ambulance because I couldn't breathe. Again, this was early, this was around like the 15th of March, so it was one of the earlier times, I suppose, and they kept me for a few hours. My stats were okay and my x-ray was reasonably okay. So the reg wanted to keep me in. She knew clinically I was very unwell, but the senior reg said I didn't fit the criteria, so they sent me home, but the reg said, get swapped. So my GP knew my history, so he organised, and I was swabbed the day after Patrick's day, and I had the results. And um, I, when I went to get swabbed in Tallaght the Stadium, they said, look, you look really unwell. You need to go back to A&E. So I went back to A&E. So they swabbed me uh, in Tallaght Stadium. But in A&E in Tallaght, they said, you know, we want to swab you again because you look unwell. Um, and uh, I asked them to swab me for influenza because I said, if it's not COVID, send me influenza. They sent me home. My were okay, and my yeah. So I look back now. I really should have been in hospital, but I, in my head I thought, if my X-ray is okay and my tests are okay, I'm probably better off battling this myself at home. The only thing is, when you're isolated, I was in bed for maybe one and a half months. I think I got my first shower after about a month. I couldn't get out of bed. I could barely get to the toilet and back. And, that, and I slept most of the time in that month. And, and I know it sounds disgusting, things that you never watched. I have an underlying respiratory condition. So for me, I've had influenza and hospitalized and out of work for three or four months. I've done that before. So I just feel I just have to ride this. But this is different. It's even a very different fatigue. Okay. I've had with the influenza. Before COVID, I would walk daily because of my respiratory condition. I would walk 8 to 10 kilometres a day. Um, well, I used to run, but um, my consultants said would be better just walking. Um, I'm very active, involved in lots of community activities, um, choirs, and worked four days a week and looked after my parents and daughters, two daughters. One is 21 and one is 19.
2: My symptoms started in mid-March. and. I, I think it's becoming quite a typical story of the person who had, like, nothing to begin with. I mean, I was wondering, you know, have I escaped this? You know, I had the, the slightest congestion. It was so, so mild. And that, that word's become very political now, but that that's what I thought it was. I thought, I've just got a mild infection. A couple of weeks of the sniffles and we're done. Fantastic. Let's move on. Not what happened at all. After a couple of weeks, I started to get quite severe shortness of breath and my shortness of breath included I didn't have blue lips but I had grey lips and sort of blue nail beds so I was starting to see evidence that something was very very wrong. I got assessed but my oxygen saturations were fine and this was at the the COVID hub um, in Edinburgh and they were actually fantastic but there wasn't really anything they could do and they said well your oxygen saturations are fine so all we can do is send you home at this point This is probably um, word finding. This is probably the the hardest part you're going to experience, and you know you'll you'll get over it. So I I kind of felt like I'd reached the summit in terms of that part of the illness, and it was going to be fine after that. And I went home. Um, Sorry, I'm getting really muddled.
0: You're okay. Take your time. I've,
2: I've I've remembered the word that I wanted now. The nurse I spoke with said, this will be the peak of the illness and you'll start to feel better soon. And she said that in good faith. She believed it. I believed it. And I went home in a couple of days. I was much, much more unwell. And I went to bed um, on one particular evening. It's hard to explain how I felt. The orthostatic intolerance was was starting. I just felt like being on my feet wasn't good. And I got into bed and then I thought, "I I don't think I can get out now. And I thought, what's going to happen when I need to go to the bathroom? What's going to happen when I need to to get a glass of water? And I said to my partner, I think I'm really sick. I don't think I can walk. And he said, right, we're phoning um, 111 now. So he phoned for me because I tend to find that sometimes having a man act on my behalf means I get a better result. So I just, I was worried about being dismissed and I was right to be worried. They insisted on speaking to me. They said my breathing sounded fine. I was talking in incomplete sentences. My breathing was not fine. I could take in a breath for maybe two seconds, two full seconds, and then I was at my lung capacity. And I felt absolutely terrible. I I knew that I couldn't walk. And I said to them, I'm going to collapse if I try to walk. I don't even know if I can crawl to the bathroom. And they said, you were assessed the other night. You've already seen somebody. We're overstretched. And they asked, do you suffer from anxiety? And I said (gasps) as clearly as I could, it's not anxiety. I'm really sick. And there was no negotiating with them. And wow, that's awful. Yeah. I, I got up and just hit the floor immediately. I was, uh, my partner said I was absolutely radiating. Like I was so hot, but I felt freezing. It was all these yeah. like red flags of serious infection. And I remember at that point thinking, this virus really is like SARS. It's, mm. this isn't mild. Why are, we, why are we saying this is mild? Mm-hmm. I just, I felt so, so ill. But interestingly, I felt so much better once I was on the floor. And so once I was down and I wasn't having to sort of stay upright, I felt a lot more comfortable. Um, but, you know, before I went into this analysis of how I was feeling, I you know, called an ambulance and that took a few hours to arrive. And I was lying on the floor with my partner thinking, am I going to get taken seriously? And... There were two paramedics and they were there was an interesting binary opposition there one of them was really really lovely and was taking me seriously and the other one was just rolling her eyes she didn't believe i couldn't walk she was furious that i needed a, a wheelchair um to get out to the the ambulance but even sitting upright in the wheelchair felt really really uncomfortable to me and fortunately once i got taken into the hospital my care was excellent um they were great I can fault it i suppose well i suppose i can fault it in a sense i'm not sure that in, in different times had i had breathing difficulties like i had that i would have been sent home later that day the next uh, week or so i was crawling to the bathroom I, I just felt so unwell and i had the the kind of classic signs of neurological problems beginning around that time you know tinnitus uh, the brain fog that i experienced earlier were it feels like your brain is reaching capacity really, really quickly. And that frustration of not being able to take information in easily. And yeah, like I said, very like post-concussion syndrome, which I've had before. Mm-hmm. When I was in hospital, they said that my body had had quite a measured response. So I wasn't actually tested. Uh, that wasn't available at the time. And the, the doctor said he couldn't do that. He would get in heaps of trouble if he tested me. But they did because you didn't take the criteria I didn't yeah I wasn't I wasn't severe yeah. in inverted commas. and so they diagnosed it based on my blood work, so I was bed bound for ten weeks and oh my goodness. lying almost flat for most of that time, and the brain fog was terrible then it was very similar to having concussion so and have
0: you had concussion in the past?
2: Yes, I've had a couple of quite serious concussions and it was just this feeling like there was too much going on in my head and i had to you know turn screens off and you know i couldn't use my computer
5: for scientists like me, concussion is a similar problem to COVID nineteen, which is that you know people take a blow to the head, and you have absolutely no idea what's wrong because all the blows to the head are slightly different, and there's not one part of the brain that gets affected. You put them into a, a, a an MRI scanner and look at their brain; it looks completely normal, but they're not normal. They're complaining of brain fog, but they can never get back to their daily lives. And trying to pull those pieces apart and work out, well, so what is wrong with them then, uh, and, and you know where where are the problems, and therefore. Or what what's going on in the brain is is yeah I guess that's sort of the bread and butter of what I do I mean we know from say concussion that you know deficits even fairly mild deficits can prevent people performing their jobs effectively going about their activities they living
7: in my personal life I've learned that I have to make a lot of adjustments um, for example cooking it's taken me burning my hands burning three or four different pots and pans To finally learn that I need to simplify making dinner and not multitask or even allow someone to talk to me. And so if I have a friend over, I'll tell them, listen, please don't talk to me right now because I can't focus on what you're saying and make dinner. So the feeling that my head is just kind of
4: full of like expanding foam or or cotton wool, which makes it kind of really hard to focus or have any real clarity of thought I'm having a lot of trouble with my memory and um, so sometimes it's just just it started off with little things like particularly at work I'd, I'd forget a small thing that I would never normally forget it's forgetting to do something that that's usually I'd say routine and and it's just not quite working so, so yeah at first it was, it was little things and fairly sporadic but a few weeks ago when the brain fog was at its worst, um, there was a day midweek and I'd lost an entire day I couldn't remember. So that was that was quite frightening. Yeah. I remember yeah. I remember just going to bed and I I just cried because like I knew things had happened. I knew my granddad had come through for the day, but I couldn't remember anything we'd done or, you know, where we'd been, what we'd eaten.
1: For me, it comes in like a tsunami. I could be fine for two days and then it's just hidden and, and you feel you're just being run over by a train. It's hard to describe even the brain fog, you know. That yeah. it's, it's just, um, you're not focusing on anything. You're getting nothing done and it's achieving it's that's what you see if you're achieving nothing. Yeah. Um, that the, the time and the day have just passed and you can't really recall a lot of it.
7: I just feel stupid. I I really am not able to process complex thoughts. Uh, There are chunks of clarity. So one time I had a chunk of clarity and I was doing some work in which I was reviewing reports and audits and making notes. And after about an hour, I looked down at my paper and realized the pen wasn't moving and I had no idea what I wanted to write. So I looked back at what I was reading to just see if I could prompt my memory. And I looked at the words and I knew I saw words, but I had no idea. I couldn't understand what I was reading. And so I just closed up and went and sat down and took an hour and a half nap.
9: Now my brain fog is basically not being able to concentrate, not being able to understand, comprehend. If, if there's two people talking to me at the same time, I have difficulty. And it's almost like a delay. It's like a, I have to say it again in my own head, what somebody's just said to me to try and understand it. It's just the most bizarre thing. You just don't feel yourself. You feel like something is buzzing around in your brain. It's like this cotton wool in there. <laughs>
2: filtering. That's the word filtering. Um, you don't want information to come in. You just want to go in a dark room. I suppose it's quite like having a migraine. That's what it was like for me in the, the early days. So I wasn't even getting to the, the decision making or the word finding. I could barely speak at all. My brain was saying, I'm dealing with something and I don't have time to decide what we're having for tea tonight. Let's just rest. I let my body do that um, for quite a long time. and, And it can be quite frightening, I think, when you you're reaching for a word and there's just silence. Uh, Where
5: COVID-19 is concerned, we've got a few clues, right? We know that this is a respiratory illness. And one of the things about respiratory illnesses, people tend to think, well, that's lungs, that's not about the brain, right? But actually, respiratory illness causes an interruption of the oxygen supply to the brain. Again, in non-COVID times, many of the patients that I see with brain injuries are actually cardiac arrest patients. They're people who have had a cardiac arrest. Uh, their brain has been impaired because of the interruption of the flow of oxygen to the brain that causes the brain damage. And here, I think there's good reason to believe there's going to be similarities with COVID-19. And that is that you are interrupting the oxygen supply uh, by interfering with the respiratory system. Then, of course, you have a whole bunch of these people are going on ventilators, right? Being on a ventilator it's appallingly bad for your brain because that really is an interruption in the oxygen supply it's you know prone to being an unstable supply you're messing around with people's normal exchange of oxygen so that could also affect the brain sedatives i mean a lot of people don't know. Um, I think, you know, it's a breeze getting on a ventilator. Well, it isn't a breeze. And uh, a it's not something anybody ever wants to happen to them. Um, But also, um, in order to stay on the ventilator, these people are on very heavy duty sedatives usually to prevent them pulling their tubes out and these sorts of things sedatives you know in those sorts of doses uh, can also have you know effects on the brain now all of these are peripheral effects right i mean the other possibilities of course the virus is affecting the brain itself and I, I keep saying this i think the jury is still out i think there is more and more evidence that covid 19 is having direct effects on the brain it is producing neuroinflammation and various mm-hmm. brain processes, an uh, you know, enhanced immune response uh, within the brain yeah. that could be affecting brain function directly.
8: The brain fog described by the long COVID group really very closely mimics the after effects of sepsis as a consequence of bacterial infection. We've been looking after people who've survived sepsis for. Many, many years, and we broadly describe their after effects in three domains, which are psychological, physical, and cognitive. Looking after patients with COVID 19 who've been seriously ill, this condition looks like sepsis at a clinical level. Um, at a cellular level, and what we understand about this condition, this is an immune response, it's activation of the immune system, it's activation of the coagulation pathway. Which is exactly what we see in patients with sepsis. It's just that the pathogen causing this activation of those pathways is different. So there will be subtle differences and nuanced differences, but in general, from a pathological perspective, the after effects are likely to be similar. And they're likely to be mediated, as you say, by inflammatory change to the organ systems, including the brain,
0: I want to shine a light on both the lingering symptoms of brain fog and fatigue and also the neurological complications. Um, I just think with so much focus on the respiratory symptoms, on number of beds, number of people in ICU, number of deaths, I think a very, very important aspect and population are being missed and I fear (laughs) with serious consequences, to be honest.
1: So
0: what kind of neurological complications are you seeing with COVID? So those, we kind of grew them into four groups within the paper. So we have people who had
3: encephalopathy, so people who had a, like a delirium. So people who are either confused or disorientated um, with hallucinations, most of whom responded well with just supportive therapy and didn't need any additional therapy. Um, then we also have people who had inflammation within the brain. So either an infectious encephalitis, so an infection from COVID itself affecting the brain, or an inflammatory response within the brain and spinal cord from COVID itself, so as in like a para-infectious or post-infectious phenomenon. So we saw a number of people with something that's called ADEM, so acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, which is an inflammatory disease that affects the white matter, the brain and spinal cord. But we could actually see that there was a pattern evolving. And that there was a higher rate than we would have expected for that time period in London of ADEM. As it went on, we learned as well, because obviously at the beginning, we didn't know what would necessarily happen. But we thought it was worthwhile looking for potential neurological complications because Wuhan had described some neurological complications. So, And we've seen it with other coronaviruses, so with SARS and MERS, there have been complications in the past. So it wasn't to be unexpected. We just didn't know exactly what they would be. Obviously, there was an increased risk of stroke, so COVID makes people more prone to clotting, so people have more stroke. Because COVID infects the line in the brain as well and makes you more thrombotic, there's probably more than one mechanism as to well why
0: people have an increased risk of stroke. Is it that they are travelling more freely than a clot usually would, or more quickly than a clot might?
3: It seems that the blood is, is stickier, so something about COVID increases inflammation within the blood vessels and makes the blood clot more easily than it should do okay um so and then also a clot will will travel until it can't get any further until it goes to a point where it can't pass any further and then it will stop the blood flow to that part of the brain and that's when people get weakness or cause their speech or that but i think what was interesting was there were different features on their mri about their so obviously they had the typical features of a stroke but they were often larger they had sometimes more than one stroke they often had a clot in their lung and also in their brain so that would be within veins and arteries which was right. different so it wasn't that it went from their lung and went okay. up to their brain so just was you know, they were
0: sorts.
3: yeah they were generally more from body so their blood was stickier and more likely to clot.
0: And is it true that there has been a, a greater proportion of younger people presenting um, with those stroke-like or clot issues?
3: I suppose they kind of ranged and I suppose the the issue about COVID is we don't, whilst we know for the the risk factors for more severe disease and respiratory disease, so people who are older, people who are obese, people who are black or Asian or minority ethnic groups with diabetes, we don't, I suppose we probably don't have enough numbers to know what increases your risk factors for getting neurological complications. Okay. Um, and I suppose we don't, you know, we had a, a range of ages in stroke, but I think because it makes the blood stickier, then increase your risk then throughout regardless of your other vascular risk factors but obviously a lot of patients did have vascular risk factors, they had other risk factors as well some them but some of them had no other risk factors for stroke and still had a stroke as part of COVID right. And some people have had very minimal respiratory symptoms and either at the time you know with their stroke and then developed a cough or a parexia or their stroke had occurred maybe a week or two after their COVID illness I've to a number of patients in clinic who have said it's taking two or three months to fully recover and feel back to themselves. And that's not, you know, that's kind of just feeling a little bit more normal that they're still having fatigue and brain fog.
0: The mechanisms in your paper, you, you mentioned a couple of possible mechanisms. You've touched on some of those already, just as, as we're speaking. Direct injury from the virus yeah, itself? So maybe direct viral injury. So I suppose like other viruses, there may be a direct
3: effect so that it may cause a direct toxic effect to the brain itself. You can also have indirect mechanisms, so the inflammation that can occur from the virus or shortly after you have the virus. And then there can be antibodies that you can produce that can cause an inflammatory response also. And obviously then COVID, as I said, you know, we talked about the stickiness of the blood, so that increase your risk for stroke and these little microhemorrhages that we see. Um, and I suppose there are other infections that affect the brain. So HIV is an infection that affects the brain and tends to cause both kind of direct and indirect mechanisms as well. Um, and there's lots of infections like EBV and chickenpox and lots of other infections that cause kind of fatigue and brain fog and numbness and tingling. So there's lots of things that can trigger, I suppose, like an autoimmune or a secondary response to the virus. So even though you may no longer actively have the infection, that the brain is still suffering the effects of it.
0: You do mention also severe systemic disorder. So can you just explain what that might mean, that it could be the effects of severe systemic disorder? Just explain to me what that is. So if
3: you have a severe systemic illness from COVID, so if you had a really bad respiratory infection with it, then you required ICU ventilation. Because a lot of the patients had to be ventilated for a very long time. So some people were ventilated for 10, 14, 20 plus days. So it's a very long period of time to be ventilated and that has an impact on the brain and brain function in and of itself,
6: even without any viral infection on the brain. With obesity, my main interest is looking at how inflammation in the brain uh, affects how neurons work and therefore affects how cognition works, how we think and how we remember. So
0: neurons are brain cells. Yeah.
6: Um, so yeah, how brain cells talk to each other, how they reproduce and how they function. And with COVID, one of the things that's really been coming out is, you know, we thought early on that this is a respiratory infection, this is happening in the lungs. Um, but what's increasingly being recognized is that there's two other major problems in COVID. One of them is clotting, causing blood clots and, you know, sticky blood. And the other one is inflammation. And there seems to be a lot coming out now about you know, massive inflammatory responses to COVID, like above and beyond what you'd expect with, with an infection of that kind. And some of the neurological symptoms the doctors have been reporting, firstly, speak to the crossing effects that, you know, there's an increase in possible an increase in strokes and other factors. So I'm interested in, again, this ongoing inflammation and ongoing results of inflammation. So if you have people that, as you say, you know, for whatever reason, they get over the infection well enough to not end up in hospital, not end up in ICU, but have this ongoing brain fog, ongoing fatigue issues, ongoing symptoms. Many of the symptoms that people are reporting are symptoms that are highly associated with inflammatory disorders. Uh, not all of them. There's, you know, there's a wide range of symptoms and not all of them fit into that category, but a lot of them do. And so one of the things that concerns me is that if we have a situation where there is a huge proportion of the people who are infected, who kind of aren't on the official lists even, I mean, especially the people who were infected early on who wouldn't even have got a test, then what we may have is a large cohort in the population who have had severe inflammation, including potentially neuroinflammation, who have ongoing issues with inflammation, including possibly neuroinflammation. And that this may, on the in the kind of short to medium term, be associated with cognitive and memory issues, probably varying severities. For some people, that might be very subtle. Um, And, you know, my work with obesity, what I'm looking at in young people is very subtle, like not something you'd notice day to day, and may then extend to really genuinely feeling like your memory is problematic. But what does that mean for the long term? Is this something that just gets better as the infection gets better? You know, maybe people feel a bit rubbish and a bit brain foggy for a year, and then that's it, you're fine. Or is this something that's going to increase vulnerability for problems later on, potentially in old age. So we've talked about vulnerability to dementia in the context of obesity and obesity-related disorders. But if the mechanism by which obesity increases vulnerability to later dementia is chronic inflammation involving neuroinflammation, and if this ongoing symptoms of COVID are evidence of ongoing chronic inflammation and chronic neuroinflammation, then there's a real risk that we've got a significant cohort within the population that may be at substantially increased risk of neurodegeneration later on. And that may not be the case at all. We really don't know anything at all, but I think it's important that we look at this issue now to look at what's happening straight away after infection, what's happening in the short to medium term in the next couple of years, and keep an eye on it.
0: Could you actually explain to me what mechanisms underlie memory and uh, cognitive issues in obesity?
6: There's lots of mechanisms in play in terms of the literature at the moment on that. One of A big one is insulin, especially with the links of diabetes. But one kind of big one that keeps coming up again and again is systemic inflammation and linked to that neuroinflammation.
0: So neuroinflammation would be inflammation, particularly in the brain? Absolutely, yes.
6: So the idea is that there's a lot of factors about obesity that are associated with increase in systemic inflammation. Um, This is related to the workings of adipose tissue, of fat tissue, so directly related to having excess fat, but there's also a lot of association with diet. High fat, high sugar diet tends to be what we call inflammatory, an inflammatory diet, and that is associated with higher levels of inflammatory markers.
9: I had a very well I still have a very responsible job I deal with you know murders um, anything you can think of I'm a press officer now and um, I deal with a lot of um, emergency situations paedophiles domestic violence so I have to be absolutely on my game I have to be absolutely my brain has to be taking in information throwing out information to the media and the press and So I have to be, my brain has to be sharp. And if it's not, I'm going to mess somebody's, you know, life up. I'm going to break the law by giving information away that, you know, I'm not going to protect somebody like I should. So it's a very responsible job. And there's absolutely no way on earth I could do that job right now.
4: Yeah, I I think mentally, um, I've always been very focused and very much able to multitask. Um, In in my job, I'm in management. So, you know, I, I manage a team of people. I've just found, since COVID and since the, the fatigue, I find it really difficult, A, managing a group of people, and B, I have no ability to multitask now. It's very difficult for me to be able to do my job and also lead a team. Luckily, work has been really understanding.
1: I'm conscious of sick leave. I'm conscious, I hate being out sick. That's an added pressure. You know, why am I not getting better? You know, am I getting any? You know, will I, you know, ever get out? I think that's a huge, will I get out of this cycle? I feel I'm making a step forward and then I'm hit by it again. And, you know, with no warning, you know, my type of work, you have to be very organised and planning. Uh, I do think you probably would interfere.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and you're dealing with patients, and so you kind of can't afford to yeah. be making mistakes.
2: I work in linguistics and word finding, unfortunately, has been the main symptom of brain fog that i've been experiencing and as someone who works with language you know I'm, I'm passionate about words i believe in having a simple but still fairly rich vocabulary and i can't access it it's like the see so i'm having trouble now <laughs> with the exact problem that i'm describing so it's like my brain goes to the database and the word isn't there and there's a silence we have
8: people who've been chief executives of companies we've had to. So- Retire from that position, and that's fair. People, we've had senior partners in Cooper, who could no longer exercise the judgment needed for their role and have had to take sabbaticals or have had to take alternative roles. The after effects that we're hearing described are pretty much identical.
2: I am the admin of a support group, it was started by women called Claire Hasty, I believe, back in May. And Claire is one of these get things done kind of people. And she just saw that the people around her, well, herself and people around her were struggling with ongoing symptoms. And she said, right, we need to do something about this. So she started up the group, I think, you know, just so that people had somewhere to go and people to talk to. She wasn't having um, issues with her doctor at the time. But as more people joined, we started to see there were issues around not being taken seriously. So people were going to the doctors and I experienced this myself and being told, it's anxiety, it's all in your head. It seemed to point to the problem being psychosomatic in some way. And this was often because they couldn't find anything. But I think part of the reason perhaps that they weren't finding anything is that the tests were emergency tests, um, basic bloods, um, ECG, which you know, doesn't always find anything. And as, as time went on, when people managed to get more comprehensive investigations, suddenly we're seeing things like pericarditis, valve damage, inflammation in the brain showing up on MRIs and so on. So there does seem to be something um, going on in this cohort. Primarily the reason for the group is just what it says on the 10. It's, it's for support. People don't know where to go. And it's not always medical professionals. Um, some medical professionals are incredibly sympathetic. They just don't know what to do. Um, but it's also the people around us. Our friends and family aren't always very supportive either. And they seem to be getting fed up. Um, So people are reporting the same sorts of questions coming from their friends and family, like, are you better yet, Um, rather than how are you? And people have just started saying they're fine, but they're not. They're suffering symptoms like fatigue, uh, muscle aches, palpitations, random fevers sometimes. And like we say, the brain fog has been one of the most central symptoms that's coming up again and again.
4: A little bit more understanding, I think, from the the medical professionals, I mean, everyone that I've been to see has been really empathetic but has just basically held their hands up and said, we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know how
9: long you're going to be sick for. Well, mine said to me, oh, well, you just lost your mum, so you're probably feeling really, you know, terrible because of that. And I said, absolutely not. I lost my dad two years ago. I know what grief's like. This is, this is not grief. But she didn't seem to. She still didn't. And then she went, at the end, she said, I think you should have grief counselling. I thought, I don't need grief counselling. I need you to help me with this. You know that's the problem. And and as you say, people are saying, you know, are you just anxious? And I know when um when you're grieving, you do feel anxious. I'm not. I'm not anxious. I'm not stressed. I don't feel stressed. I mean, the most frustrating thing is my body just. You know, and I do feel like COVID has hijacked my grief. I felt
1: so alone and so isolated. I thought I was imagining my symptoms. Um, I felt, you know, that nobody really understood. I didn't really understand it myself what was actually happening. Um, so I'm really delighted that somebody is actually taking the initiative to really highlight that there are many of us out there that are really struggling. Yeah. Um, and that we need to be heard and we need to be taken seriously.
0: What I'm hearing from people with brain fog in long COVID is that they are not being taken seriously by doctors. And when they're going to doctors with cognitive symptoms, the doctors are telling them that they're actually psychological issues. You know, they're saying you're just suffering with anxiety. Is that something that people with sepsis have experienced, or is it just so well laid down in that that doctors are aware that there is cognitive consequences?
8: So it's getting better, but I, I think you know, and you will know as a, a scientist, but health professionals when faced with something that they don't understand are typically quite dismissive of it and yeah. it's natural human behaviour and we do still see this in, in patients who survive sepsis, but it's gradually improving. I think what we need to do is to get out there the message that actually this is organic, this is structural, this is around neurotransmitters, this is around neural death, it's around apoptosis, it's all of these things that have contributed to the Clearly, in these patients. And, uh, you know, if we get across the message in a way that health professionals can understand, then it will be easier for them. You know, no one understands the brain. Of course, we don't understand the brain. But if we can use simple messaging that actually describes pathological processes that lead to apoptosis, lead to changes in neurotransmitter signaling and so forth, then we might be able to get a greater acceptance
6: of this problem. Well, so this is one of the one of my um, like professional bugbears, and kind of one of the things I'm hoping to do with my life um, is that basically I don't think that one of the reasons I think GPS and doctors and so on don't take cognitive stuff very seriously is that they just don't have any of the tools. They like to have a test, you know, a, a, a dip in the urine, and say this is the answer.
5: It's about priorities, right? And and often these sort of psychological sequelae or changes in your mental health or brain fog or delirium or any of these things, they get pushed to the side because they're not that important relative to the I- initial problem. Um, and one of the points that I keep coming back to, we are our brains, right? That is what we are.
0: There are a lot of very scared people out there who have those kind of brain fog symptoms there 's a lot of people that i 've talked and this is all only anecdotal, of course, but it is a group of very scared people um, um they have brain fog, um a lot of them are having headaches they 're scared because they are not really in the system, and sometimes unfortunately they 're going to GPS who are perhaps saying that it's their anxiety that's causing you know, say if they're having brain fog symptoms, or they're saying, or they're even being sympathetic, but saying, well, there isn't really anything I can do about that. But it's scary for people who've never come across even current brain fog.
3: Most people are used to recovering from a virus quite quickly. You know, they think, you know, viruses last for a week or two. I think often the cognitive implications of the brain fog often last for quite a few months afterwards. So it does take quite a long time. But that's very difficult, I think, for people to have to tolerate and put up with, and particularly if people are very high performing and they're used to being able to do things very easily and quickly, it's a huge adjustment then to have to pace themselves and not be able to just do like multiple hours of, of work. Um, but so we haven't seen anything to suggest that people will get a progressive cognitive disorder or a dementia from this. Um, I know it's still quite early, but there isn't anything to suggest that And most of the patients so far I've had who you know were affected earlier on the pandemic are improving. Uh, and so that would be the hope that most people will. If you push
1: yourself too much, you're going to go, bam. You know, yeah. your, your whole system crashes again. And it's trying to learn how to increase your activity at an acceptable pace yes. um, and challenge yourself. And it's really hard. I really felt, you know, and so this week, I'm having a really bad week. If it was supposed to be last week, I would say, yay, I'm on the road.
4: After I'd had COVID originally, I went back to work full time because I actually felt okay for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, And I think I probably pushed things a little bit too far physically. And then it was after then when I had um, my first relapse and first kind of bouts of
0: brain fog. Would you say that it's safe to say, as with other post-viral infections or autoimmune or chronic inflammation, that it is good to gradually start to build up? starting back at work in small stages, you know, an, an hour or half an hour, whatever you can do, the same with physical exercise. Would you say that that's, that would
3: yeah, be good? Yeah, I mean, there design? are, important strategies, so pacing and greater return to exercise and activities and listening to your body as well. So if you are, you know, having a good day, that you still do the same amount, that you don't try to overdo it on a good day and then pay for it on other days, that you try to build it up slowly and over time yeah. that will improve. That's normally what's, you know, we know helps manage chronic fatigue and other post-viral syndromes. And hopefully yeah. that would also work. And you know, there's no reason to think it shouldn't work within COVID No, as well. no.
0: And I, I think as well, because people are so fatigued, they say, oh, good, just can't walk. But like even two minutes one day. Even just sitting up in
3: bed yeah, and throwing that for a few minutes and then sitting up with our legs down and then standing and then walking. And I saw people often sometimes even if you can only walk your bed to the, you know, around the bed and around the room, and you do that for you know, a week or two and then you build up to doing that twice. And then yeah. sometimes you just have to start it off really small and it sounds yeah. very frustrating to people, I think, but it's the only way to do it. It just has to start really small and build up
0: would you feel, I mean, I certainly would be of the opinion um, that if you look after your brain health more generally by ensuring that you're sleeping at regular, you know, you're going to bed and getting up at the same time, you know, even if you're not sleeping very well, but to be at least trying to establish a regular sleep routine, if you're actually trying to manage stress and anxiety, eating properly and regularly so that your brain is actually getting the, and healthily getting the regular nutrients, uh, that you're starting to try to exercise you're starting to try and stimulate your brain that all of those things will help your recovery
3: yeah they're all sensible approaches to try to help Mm. combat cognitive symptoms Uh, i think they're all reasonable things to do and they help with lots of kind of chronic conditions so if you have a better cognitive reserve then you'll probably recover maybe quicker
1: I'm
0: glad you brought that up. That's what I was wondering, you know, because obviously I'm an advocate for brain health and explaining to people that you can build brain reserves and you can build cognitive reserves. And I kind of talk about it in terms of investments, you know, it's like building these reserves up that you can cash in at some point in the future when your brain is faced with challenge and that challenge can take the form of a disease or injury or even a virus or infection. So if we're going to have to live with COVID on an ongoing basis, would it be fair to say, well, look, if you adopt a brain healthy lifestyle, it will help you in some way. Same as, I suppose, somebody who is more physically fit will have a better chance of fighting a virus than somebody who maybe, um, which is, you know, like I think obesity um, was one of the... the yeah, it's people with of the had for, had, had, yeah, Not even just a risk factor, but, yeah, but they have um, poorer prognosis, I think. Indeed, say. Yeah,
3: so if you're obese or, you know, anybody, people who are over 50 and diabetes just have a much higher rate of mortality from COVID which is very unfortunate mm. um but yeah I mean I think having a good con reserve is probably going to be helpful or beneficial obviously it won't if you were to get inflammation within the brain it won't stop you necessarily mm. getting that but it may help to to speed up your recovery I think it's just a good idea you know, as you said just to have that in the bank in reserve and hopefully that will help you recover quicker and then I think it would be helpful to have a you know those strategies and certainly people who have the brain fog or memory problems afterwards so to adopt those strategies, they would help them to get better and improve.
0: The brain can be really quite resilient. Do people manage to make a recovery in terms of cognitive functioning after sepsis? There's a few perspectives
8: along this. I mean, firstly, it's not every patient, and sepsis is defined by need for hospitalisation, so by definition people with sepsis are sick, and you couldn't really manage sepsis at home. So we have a sick cohort of patients, around 40% have significant sequelae, or oh, sequelae but persisting at six months, so it's not everybody, it's, it's 40% of people that's significant. The incidence of moderate to severe cognitive dysfunction in this group was around 17%, so again, it's but it's a prevalent problem. Um, What we tend to say to people is that you can expect to be back to 90 to 95% of your normal functional self within 12 to 18 months. And the the time course is different for different patients, but generally people improve. But, you know, there's a degree of learning to live with, um, and I'm afraid that the phrase has become a bit of a sticking point now, but new normal then, and they adapt and they might undertake their personal CBT that they don't really know is CBT, and they learn to retrain their brain, and yes. they learn to um, adopt coping strategies and, you know, all of the things that those of us do yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. I'm, na- I'm naturally a clumsy person, and I've trained my brain to actually think about that cut down before I start the next the next task. And, yeah, you know, it, it's just just basic stuff, and they, they just learn and, and yeah. they retrain, and they get used to it. Generally,
9: people return. I couldn't have done this with you a few weeks ago. I couldn't have even properly, you know. So I do. I am definitely improving. But I'm still not there,
2: and I can offer hope there because mine is definitely improving.
0: With people recovering from these long-lasting symptoms, much as their recovery is going to be very much step-by-step, step, very small progress at a time and building on that, to get them back into the workforce, there needs to be accommodation for them to come back in very small doses, even if it's just starting back for an hour a week and working up to two hours, and also acknowledging that relapse is often a part of this kind of recovery.
8: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, and uh, you know they need to understand that. Firstly, they have rights. Um, there are employment rights in any country, whether it be Ireland, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and they will vary between the countries. But they do have rights around the return to work. And employers need to understand their duty—not their legal duty, but their moral duty—to rehabilitate people into the workplace gradually.
0: There's a huge proportion of people who followed government advice, and when they became ill, they didn't go to their GP, they didn't go to hospital. They were considered, inverted commas, mild cases. Um, Many of those have never been swabbed for COVID. And in fact, actually, as time has gone on, they are experiencing worse symptoms, more debilitating symptoms in a sense, in that they have a lot of cognitive symptoms, both physical and mental fatigue, and they kind of can't get Back to work.
8: What I would say is that it's imperative that governments around the world come to learn that the after effects of critical illness with infectious disease are significant and that frankly they can't afford not to appropriate rehabilitation resources to these patients because people are not returning to work. The Humanitarian burden is huge, but the fiscal burden is arguably even greater. And if we don't rehabilitate people, we're simply going to see huge swathes of society not return to productivity.
0: Data from more than 4 million people of all ages and backgrounds who've taken part in the COVID symptom study revealed that 1 in 10 people who contract COVID-19 are experiencing prolonged post-viral effects. That's about 2.5 million people globally, excluding those who contracted the virus but were never tested. The Long Covid support group on Facebook, which has more than 20,000 members, is where thousands of people like Barbara, Caroline, Carolyn, Helen and Maddie find mutual support. It is just one of many support groups bringing up online. Literally hundreds of individuals shared their stories with me. They feel invisible and unheard. They are desperate for help, desperate to be believed. Many were unable to contribute in person to this podcast due to relapses or debilitating brain fog that prevents them from carrying on a coherent conversation. Others ask me not to use their real names because they are afraid that admitting to brain fog would have negative repercussions on their jobs. Diane was the sole income provider for her household of four with a director level position at a Fortune 500 company. She is now looking at the prospect of fighting for long-term disability and selling her home if she doesn't improve quickly. Doris describes herself as being one step above needing a caregiver. 31-year-old Harriet feels that she has aged 40 years. Cindy, like many others, had to stop driving when she forgot the rules of the road and drove onto oncoming traffic. Fiona has set three kitchen fires. Susan almost gave her son's medicine to her daughter. Abby has had to postpone her wedding. Vivian says that a glumping alien has taken over her brain. Diane is a shell of her former self. Joe had to take early retirement after making some serious mistakes at work. Leslie is worried for her 15-year-old daughter who has brain fog. Emma had to suspend her PhD. It's completely ruining Steph's life, beating her soul on the very core of her creativity. She cannot cope with much more of it, and to be ignored by the doctors is just making it far worse. Doris wants the medical community overall to realise that this is real and it isn't anxiety or depression. She would like to get help from a doctor or an expert rather than trying to figure out how to help herself on her own. Brain fog is real and can be extremely debilitating. And while it can be associated with anxiety and depression, most of the individuals living with long COVID can point to a sudden onset. Doctors need to listen, believe and offer practical advice. It's simply not good enough to put up your hands and say, I don't know what to do. Yes, COVID-19 is new, but post-viral fatigue and brain fog are not new. Global efforts have appropriately focused on testing, tracing and saving lives with research funding going to vaccine research. The long-term effects of infection are significant and governments can't afford not to allocate resources to COVID-19 brain research and neurorehabilitation rehabilitation because people are not recovering and they are not returning to work. Dr. Patricia McNamara and her colleagues are planning to set up a service to support patients with neurological complications, including brain fog. Hopefully other hospitals will also begin to roll out similar services. Dr. Adrian Owen is leading a COVID-19 brain study. He's looking for 50,000 people who have experienced COVID brain fog to take part in online research. Those who take part in the study will be given feedback and they'll be able to take this to their doctor and show them that these are the results of validated tests of their cognitive functioning. The UK Sepsis Trust founded by Dr. Ron Daniels has some excellent resources for people living with long COVID. Dr. Lucy Check is also carrying out research and I will leave links to these resources and to the research studies in the show notes for this special episode. My sincere thanks to all of these experts for their contribution to this episode and for their ongoing brain fog research and support. Huge thanks to Barbara, Caroline, Carolyn, Helen and Maddie, and the hundreds of others who shared their stories with me. If you come across someone living with long COVID, please listen and believe. I will leave the final word to Helen.
9: My great-grandmother, Died in the um, 1918 flu, which left my grandmother, aged three, without a mother. And when my mum used to tell me stories about that, I used to think this will never happen again. And then my mum has had the same fate as her grandmother, and I'm so frustrated at the non-believers. And I think you've got to believe that this is this is a real thing. You know, we're not making this up. And really, don't think that you you'll be okay. Wear your mask, wash your hands, keep distance from people. You know, this is no joke. I just want people really to think about, you know, don't forget. Yes, we didn't die. We're absolutely grateful that we didn't die. But we are still suffering and I wouldn't like you to be the next person suffering like we are. My name is Sabina Brennan.
0: You have been listening to a special episode of Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain.